Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My name is Ryan Narayan and my guest this week is Caleb Simon, CISO at Robinhood. Caleb, what is this Chief Information Chief Security Officer at Robinhood do? Can you define your role and mission? Sure. Um, you know, our our job is to enable our employees to do things safely. So, I like to say we allow them to do unsafe things safely uh and enable the business to accomplish what they need to do. So you view it as security as this business enabler that gets out of the way and get people uh getting things done and securely in the midst of r- mitigating risk to the organization and keeping breaches at bay and so on. They, like you take that part of it really really we, seriously. We we do. Where... We do. Although, you know, what you find, you know, I think it's easy to say hey, we're a business enabler. We don't want to say no. And that is the overall theme and goal that we want to achieve. However, I find practically it's not as simple and clear as that, right? Like it depends on the level of maturity of the organization, the team, the project, the form around. Sometimes you have to say no. And there are times where you have to have a, you have to draw a hard line. Uh, and there are times that where you have the ability and the maturity and capability to say, absolutely do this and we have uh the right way and the safe way uh to do what you're doing so in general that's our goal that's our mindset that's what we want to achieve but it all really does vary uh in a practical way as to where you have to draw the line to say no versus yes so you look like a very very young man but thank you in in internet years and in cybersecurity years like you go way back you come from a different generation of folks who were there at the beginning i believe let's can we talk a little bit about your background i believe your your entry into security might have might have come in the yeah. 1990s which really really yeah. dates us both can you talk about a little bit about how you landed into this space and then we'll we'll pivot a little bit to the entrepreneurial bits uh later on but how did you how did you end I, up here you know I was one of those kids that uh, I think always got in trouble and and somehow my rebelliousness turned into computers I remember uh I was on a I was playing around on a BBS. So if you guys remember bulletin board systems before the internet, so this is probably 92 or something, 90, somewhere around there. Um, And uh, there was this uh, article that I read on how to make free payphone calls. And I said, uh, wow, you can do that. And went and learned how to build a red box. And from that point forward, it hooked me. And uh, I think my first actual security job I was hired at this company called S1 or Security First, which was based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And I was hired as the sole security person managing and deploying firewalls uh, at that time at this, yes, at this company. And that was my first real like security job. And I think that was in like 95, 1995. Completely different landscape, right? I mean, security wasn't even a thing then. Firewalls was like a, the extent yeah, of fi- firewalls was was security, and it was not even there was not even really a security title. It was you were part of like IT, and your job was just to go manage this thing. Right, right. There's no such thing. I feel like we're <laughs> heading back there. I feel like we're heading back there, and the security specialist is starting to go away. And there's some arguments that the security specialist should go in; it should live in IT, and IT should become the security people. Oh, but that's a different conversation. Not at all. But yeah, I um, can I can have that discussion all day long. But go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. The go ahead. the 
No, I, I want to go back to the late 90s and kind of paint the picture of what that looked like because a lot of your, 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 your peers from that time also was big thing is self-taught. A lot of it was figuring out and fiddling and figuring things out yourself versus today where there are you know, university courses and training and certifications and everything. It feels like it was a different life. A lifetime ago, things were entirely different and you guys were hodgepodging it from scratch. Can you talk a little bit about how that era and time set you up for decisions about going into business and becoming entrepreneur? And, and when did you realize that cybersecurity was a thing that was outside of IT and it was becoming a real thing with companies and programs and so on? When did, when yeah, did well, that? You know, as we're speaking here, I'm so old that, you know, I consider I was part of security when it was, I think, a culture and not an industry, right? There wasn't jobs mm -hmm. around. Cybersecurity wasn't even termed as a term. It was a bunch of people just hacking and doing things. Yeah. Um, and I think when when it started, I think when firewalls started coming around, people started learning how to hack things. And I, I think it started when the when the bullets started coming is when companies said we we need ways to protect ourselves from the bullets, right? And I think that's where the, right, the right. inauguration of oh hey like we need to start finding these things and protecting ourselves and hiring individuals who knew about this. And at the time most people did not know about this and it was a learned thing on your own because it was a little bit of the the underbelly of technology right and um i right, think right. when you know when i started at s1 doing firewall things at the time there was this company called internet security systems and they built this thing called yeah uh, iss scanner this is chris klaus and tom noonan yes yes and they created this 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 sort of internet security scanner that you would scan hosts on the internet, find vulnerabilities, and uh, it became a thing. And they started turning it into this standalone business, where it's like, oh, if you want to find how hackers look at your things, this is what you use. And they had they had in this prototype phase this thing called Real Secure, which they termed intrusion detection. And uh, I remember when I was yeah. at S1, I got sent this thing. And my job is I want to go see if this thing works because it's the next thing that is not a firewall, right? Because firewalls were all we had. Right, and right. it's next gen, gen was, next this, gen was, was this term. And and I identified a whole bunch of flaws in this software. And that ended up me getting a job at ISS as a researcher. And my job there was to, uh -huh. okay, well, how do we, you know, reverse engineer software and write exploits. That was my job. And so like start publishing exploits and right, right. you can, if you're, if your Google foo is good enough, you could still find my old exploit advisories from ISS that I wrote that are probably still roaming on the internet somewhere. How, how, how important and cool was it for you to be in Atlanta at that time? Because I feel like you mentioned S1 being in Atlanta, there was Georgia tech, ISS, you mentioned uh, IBM X Force, I believe, was down there. Mark Dowd had a stint down there as well. It felt like, a, and my my recollection of the early two thousand was that the Atlanta being a hotbed of, for cybersecurity was it specifically because of Georgia Tech? And can you talk a little bit about what that scene yeah. was like? I, you know, when you think about back in those days, the the kinds of companies that were security companies, right? And you start thinking about them as not consumer, not like at the time. Uh, you know, this was like Norton antivirus, I think, like in those days. But I think enterprise right, right. companies, internet security systems, network associates, um, Ver you know, I think VeriSign, 
there are a few of these like sort of old, you know, sort of at that time new, but bigger sort of organizations focused just on security, which was really, really rare. Yeah, that yeah, was a B2B very security. rare. Because for, for the most part, for the most part, the security ecosystem was yes. antivirus, consumer That's things, right. protecting personal, right. personal data. At that time, you're talking about it became a B2B enterprise thing where businesses need to be protected. But what was what were the attack surfaces and what were the things that, that drove that at the time? Because we weren't dealing with warm attacks. We weren't dealing with ransomware at the time. What was the what were the threats? Uh, I mean, you I think you, you were you were dealing with people doing defacing of websites at the time. I think you had a lot of people popping into different parts and causing destruction and mayhem and organizations. Uh, there was a lot of focus on still even today, look, credit card theft, uh, a lot of those. And by, back, right. back then, by the way, you know, firewalls were just starting to become a standard. And so every I think web applications were just starting to take as a form of business and the front door to the business. And so you started seeing a lot of web application attacks started to happen during those time frames. And so uh, that's where you're starting to see sort of the evolution of the tech stack. And of course, with that comes the evolution of the attacker right. and how they focused. So the stack is starting to get built there and the evolution of the attacker became web app, which segments perfectly into yes. your first startup, which was Spy Dynamics, right? And you were focused entirely on this web I, app security space. Yeah. Uh, what, what was, how did you come up with that idea? Talk a little bit about the, the, the early Well, when I was at ISS, um, one of the things that I did was I, I basically led pen testing at ISS. And by the way, it wasn't called pen testing back okay. then. We didn't have that word. It was, it was, hey, Caleb, go justify the purchase of our products by breaking into the company so that they know how to plug it. Um, right. And actually during that time, I was part of X-Force. So X-Force came out of ISS. Um, and I remember leading sort of that team, pre-IBM. pre-IBM's yeah, pre acquisition, uh, right? Acquisition. This is right. I went through the ISS sort of IPO back in the bubble.com days, uh, back in those days. Right, right, um, right. And my job was just go break into companies. And so what you start finding out, obviously, in doing this is the fastest way I started figuring this out was through websites. And at the time, this was way back in the day, um, things like cross-site scripting didn't even exist yet. Right. And so it wasn't even a termed thing. SQL right. injection was barely just popping on the on the scene. We're talking we're still in the nineteen yes, nineties. Yeah, when, when did this uh, spy dynamics get started? Nineteen ninety-eight. No, so I was doing pen testing in nineteen ninety eight. Right? So nineteen ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and two thousand. Okay. Uh, was when this was happening. Right. And so I just started breaking into everything in web. I mean, there was nothing I could not break into. And so during that time, obviously, what you want to do is you want to start automating the things that you do manual. And so I started automating that. And I remember I, I actually was talking with uh, a customer and showing them, hey, here are all your issues. And they were like, how did you find all this? And I'm like, I do this stuff. And he was like, hey, if you were to like give that to me, I'd buy it from you so that I could run it instead of you running. And I was like, really? Right. He's like, yeah, like, how much would you pay? And he's like, I don't know. How much would you charge? And I was like, I don't know, 20K? And he's like, sure. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I'll buy it. I was like, here, yeah. oh, that's interesting. And so I think that then rolled into me starting uh, my company called Spy Dynamics, and we created a product called WebInspect, which is, uh, I have to say, sort of the world's first black box web scanner back in those days. Um, right. And so I, that was basically a creation of mine and automating all the work that I did. And we had a lot of, um, you know, 
spy and web inspect uh we had a lot of great claims to fame i would say that not a lot of people understand like we we do have like the we have a patent on actual web application scanning so like, you go and look at it like mm -hmm. if you try to web scan it might have patents on it it was between us and this other company called sanctum back in the day uh during these time frames yeah, yeah, yeah. we also were solely responsible in helping pci web security getting into pci uh which people can will either ah. punch me for or they will uh shake my hand for yeah applaud me for, applaud you for uh, yeah, but yeah. we started driving a lot of you know application security and product security really being uh a, another area and segment right. that you needed to focus on it's so fascinating listening to you because i feel like fast forward to 2022 like this is the bishop fox story right this continuous scanning continuous assessment in this web application space everything comes around full circle all over again i just had guys on my podcast that do bug bounty for a living and they talk exactly what you said I'm breaking into things and then I figure out I can automate it and build tools. And now the really good bug bounty guys are like doing this in, in an That's automated right. way with tools. Uh, what, what did you learn from the spy days? How long did you guys have that before? It was seven HBI years. So I started in like 2000 and we got acquired in 2007. So and that was seven fulfilling years of being a CEO and building that out? Or was I, I, was the, the, I was the CTO and founder at Spy. And it okay. was it was very fulfilling. It was some of the best times I've had in life. I mean, at the time I started the company when I was 19. And so wow. I grew up, Spy was sort of my family, right? I grew up most, all of really? those people that I worked with, uh, I built like long-term, that was my family. That was my high school experience, right? Like that was- No, we just met PJ a couple of weeks <laughs> yes. ago who came yeah. up the old spy days. Rob Reagan yes. and some of our, our mutual friends were old, old spy guys. That's right? right, yeah. So Rob is Bishop and PJ is Palo Alto. And like there's, yeah. and like that, that whole, it was a little bit of like a family that kind of spread and then they kind of built amazing things even on their own. So, right. but all those people have, you know, it's a great family experience and, you know, people that will never forget. So I just talked about like how everything comes full circle again. And a lot of the things you're doing now is, 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 you know, the roots are, are, are back then. Are there, are there any parts of security that you look at 2022 and say, why the hell are we still dealing with this? Were there things that you expected would be solved by now? And what are some examples of things that really sit around like an old sandwich that, you know, we've been struggling with this since the 1990s, early 2000, but we're still not there yet. You know, it's, here's the thing, like I actually started this journey into being on the defensive side of the, you know, most of my career has been sort of this entrepreneurial starting companies. Right. I actually switched over to this because exactly what you said is I actually looked at this and said, hey, I'm going to go build another company. What should, what problem should I go solve? And when I looked at all of the cybersecurity startups, they were all building this really amazing technology. They were doing all these really cool things. But when you actually go look at the breaches that occurred, they were all happening due to very ignorant and dumb things that like, oh, an, an open database on the internet, an unpatched box, you know, all of these things. You're like, something does not reconcile here, right? And so I said, you know, as opposed to go asking a bunch of people, I've, I've been in security, as we discussed here, a long time. I've never defended a company. So I said, I am going to right. go figure out what that is. And that's when I kind of jumped. And during this process, what I figured out is that, hey, like none of these problems get solved, Ryan. They are the same problems, just in different tech stacks, right? It's all a people process politics problem. 
And at the end of the day, it's not that we don't have technology to not have that database get open on the internet. It's the fact that there's so much confusion, complexity, and process that happens in organizations that, hey, this database just gets forgotten about. Right. Or some individual says, oh, the security controls are way too much of a pain in the butt. I'm going to go outside of the bounds and go throw it out and do it this way. Right. right, right. Sometimes security is the cause of its own problem sets. But I said, like, right. when I look at the things that are stale sandwiches, I mean, patching is still a problem. We just have more things to patch now. Right. Attack surface is way more of a problem. It's not like you can just firewall things. We just have more things to try to firewall in more layers and right. more areas. Right. Ha identity authentication. It's not that we've solved that. We just have more of those things to go figure out identity of. Now I've got IoT versus a person versus a partner versus, a, uh, you know, some sort of plugin that I've got inside of my software. It's just it's just extends it. That problem just extends to so many different layers and so right. many attack surfaces. Yeah, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm hearing Mudge do his testimony before Congress talking about what the reality is at a fully a, a, a billion dollar company with what we perceive to be a very, very mature security program. And he talks about this vulnerability scanning, attack surface management, identity issues, where's data, who has access to it, who has touched it. All of these issues are like, if, if, if Mudge and Twitter are having these issues, how do you expect anyone else to have a, a grip on these things? And I, feel, I get the sense that you're, you're either a pragmatist and a realist who's just going to deal with the reality of it, or you're a pessimist who are just like, you know, we're just circling our tails, trying to cope. Where are you in terms of mindset? What is your security, you know, mantra? Oddly, I'm an optimist uh, in a really? certain case. So well, here's, here's why I say that. Like, you know, when, when I think about most of my career hasn't been in this operations defensive role, I, I, I like to think about the way the world should be, right? Not the way that it is today, the way that it should be. And when I walk into these organizations and I see the problems that we have, I in my mind, I go to what should it be? How can we get to a place where it's so much better, but done in a better way, a different way? And um, so to me, that's more of an optimistic sort of view. And then my goal is, how do I start that journey to get us to that place, but do it in a pragmatic, realist way, right? So it's not that you need to be able to say, like, let me give you just an example. It's like, hey, um, the ideal state is that any person in a company only has access to the things they need when they need it, right? Like that is a optimistic, idealist state to get to. No organization is really at that state, but then how do you even start the journey to get on that state right. and where do so you go? So the pathway to that state is your, the pathway to that stage is your security posture. That's right. That's the correct. The pathway to get into perfection. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. And what are the different ways of getting there? Faster, quicker, better. Those are all of the decisions that get made down that path. And you mentioned, you mentioned people, technology, process, and politics. Yes. And the politics part of it never really gets discussed a lot here. And I want to throw the question to you this way. As you've had a stint at uh, uh, Capital One, Databricks, before uh, 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 Robinhood, and I feel like you're an example of CISO tenures being very, very short, um, relatively short. On average, depending on Two and who and a half you years. Do, it's 18 to First 18 to 36 months, Actually, right? Capital One How was shorter. You... I think it was like a year and a half. And then Databricks was two and a half years. So, yeah. 
how do you how do you as a CISO implement transformational foundational things and changes when 10 years are so short and the politics of it plays a role i mean we talked about much uh, uh, briefly but getting top down support and getting executive level sponsorship for your security program and doing it right and buying into everything becomes the politics of it what when you think about technology processes and all of that which is the hardest to get right you know this is it's a hard question to answer um like and i think it depends on the stage of organization for example at capital one i was entering an, an extraordinarily large very well established organization with their own practices and culture um and so right. for there you have to think about well where is it that you can make the most impact in the time that you're there that can help make some sort of difference in an organization that is quite large um right. and i think in those aspects you have to sort of pick the one thing right what's the one thing that you can really say i can make an impact on and go win and it's going to be impactful to the organization in the best way that it can and so and that can be done in a two year window absolutely it can yes absolutely give me some examples of give me some examples of some 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 things some peers of yours can focus on and and that those one things like what are some of those one things that are really doable because you can't say i'll implement multi factor authentication across this organization it's like it's such a complicated complex process that takes years and years i talked to a guy a guy uh, 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 dan lorenz on on supply chain issues this is a 10 year process before we can even get to a stage where we feel comfortable yeah. right like what are some of these small things that you think we can get done in in a 2 year 3 year window so let's take uh capital 1 as a great example at capital 1 <clears throat> when we walked in there were two big issues that i think were right off the top the first was sort of what is our what is what are our assets what do we own right that's a really big question just visibility, visibility right. which by the way this was you know before all of these asset companies that you're seeing today this was actually right. prior before to vulnerability before vulnerability management reemerged as asset management or asset a little bit yeah yeah attack, a, 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 attack, attack surface, surface management yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you just have to say well what do we own and where is it and it was a very manual process right it i literally asked like hey well what do we do this and it would take you know a very considerable amount of time and it would get returned in spreadsheets right and saying okay right. well this is how many firewalls we have right and you get this spreadsheet hey there's got to be a better way for us to be able to understand our assets and get it in an automated fashion and there is a significant move to improvement inside of the organization on being able to go do that the second thing that we did is we had a tons of teams in capital 1 that all had their own production cycle of how to get things to prod right they had their own teams they had all of their own things and how they needed to do things and so when you start saying well how do you safely build a software product and deliver it like it was everywhere there was no centralization no ability to do this and so there was a big problem do you come to every development team and say you have to use the static code analyzer you have to go do this and that's not an approach we took we said let's build a service let's abstract our code analyzers and build a pipeline so that we can hot swap them in different areas for different types of technologies and we started when i was there we had nothing at the time that i left we built an entire sdlc pipeline that not only automated all of the analyzers it was rolled out by by i think by most of the org i think 70% of the org had rolled it out all completely on their own we were we did we had no stick they actually self registered themselves connected their dashboards connected their repos to it and in fact engineering was then working with that team on putting in linting 
and other aspects of gates in this pipeline. Uh, and so these were two really big wins. I think that you know in that time frame we were able to take from zero up to real production rollout spaces. And it took a lot of hard work. And look, it wasn't me, right? It was it was all of the team and what they focused on. But driving those factors and putting support behind those factors is part of you know I think our job. Are you able to do that job easily when putting out all these fires though? Because I feel like no. whenever I talk to CISOs, that's the point, right? You're, you're trying to make these transi- transformational changes and do these you know, long-lasting things that have impact and effect in the organization, but you're constantly distracted by a little ransomware incident here, this here, this incident here. Uh, how, do you, how do you as a CISO navigate that balance? You, gotta, like what, what, what? you have to pick something every year that you're going to go get done. And it's got to be something big and it's got to be something that balances, right? And so like, I'll give you a good example. In, in Robinhood, one of the missions that we had last year um, for that year was passwordless. I would, we want to enable our customers in Robinhood to log into their application and do it in an easy but yet safe manner. Um, and the best right. experience is how do we enable something like passwordless? And so we we prepped that was a, that was one of the missions for the consumer customer facing side of our org. That's what we want to go do. And it took a long time, right? But we prepared. And when iOS 14, you know, when iOS 16 came out and the new iPhone came out, we were one of the first apps immediately already in production supporting Passkey. And so now in Robinhood, right. you can actually use Passkey and do a passwordless experience. We're not all the way there yet, we're not finished, but this is an example. You gotta pick one, two or three things depending on your org and their focuses. That is the one mission that every week you can make some progress on despite all of the fires that you're gonna have to go deal with. And so that's how I think about it. And those are the missions that we've gotta go accomplish in that year. Uh, we're running out of time, but I want to give you a chance to uh, weigh in on, because you, you live in a world where you're seeing everything. You're being bombarded and inundated with salespeople and marketing people with all the shiniest new toys. Uh, and we like to make fun of VC funding, shiny new toys, and we like to make fun of RSA and all the show floor yeah. stuff. But the reality, there's a lot of really interesting, fun, uh, uh, useful innovation happening in the startup space. And instead of beating up on startup land, give me a positive uh, spin on what you've seen. What are some of the technologies, innovation? What are some new interesting things you're seeing that should excite us that we are, we're heading in the right direction instead of just recreating these cycles? I, I, one thing that I have seen that I think is a, a little bit more in the right direction is I've seen a lot more companies start to really focus on breach and post-breach. Um, I really am under the uh, mindset of assuming breach, and that is your your that's your that's your uh, that's your uh, uh, what's the word what's the right word mindset your philosophy. philosophy yeah your philosophy and mindset is assume breach and deal with detection and response yeah, assume the attacker is already inside your organization and what are the things that you do right isn't that defeatist not at all it's actually it's the one to me it's the one thing we've got against them. It's the one advantage we have for the attacker. How so? Because the attacker doesn't know where to go, but we know where the attacker wants to go, right? And so if you know that, then you also know where are the areas that you should start focusing, your controls, your visibility, the areas that you need to protect. 
because there's a lot of the organization that isn't that important, but that attacker doesn't know that. They're going to be stumbling around trying to figure out what is important and where to go. If we know where that is and we can make that assumption, and by the way, today I would also ask, how do you differentiate between an attacker or an insider, right? I don't think there's a way to differentiate that. So there is no, I mean, I, I come back to the much testimony again, right? It's like, there's so much at stake with all, with ins, the insider, outsider, it's all the same. It's the same. So that, but the thing that you do know is that if that attacker is going to do something, they're either going to steal something, destroy something, right? The, those are the two things that they really got. And so where are they going to go do that? Where it's the most impactful. And then you can start thinking of in those mindsets and start figuring out how to lay those plans. And I don't think assume so breach is bullish. just detection, right? So you're bullish. You're bullish on folks doing uh, uh, response. I, I really like the fact that um, there. Well, well, two. I think I really like the fact that response is being paid attention to and how you react. Because again, it's not. The, the, I think the famous quote is, "You can never prevent a breach." but you can absolutely respond how you respond to one, right? It's actually, you judge your security team, not whether they prevented one, but how they respond to one. How they responded to it. And so response has been very, very, I think, not focused on in the past. And I'm starting to see a trend where we're really focusing on that breach, response, reactive, reaction aspect of things. That's the first that I'm really seeing a good trend on. The second that I'm seeing good trends on is actual fixing and remediation. Uh, or really creating secure assets from the beginning. Uh, these are things that I'm really emboldened for, like the paved paths. You know, there's no sense right now for engineers to go and absolutely create resources directly with, let's say, AWS. You can have an abstraction where the engineer can click, I need an S3 bucket, and it can create a nice, safe S3 bucket with all of the things right. you need ready for you to go in a much easier fashion. And this is an example of, I think, safety being embedded into the platform, into engineering in a way that is abstracted away from engineers. And those are things that I also see a trend of that I'm very positive. And you see investments and innovation happening there that should excite I us. I do, yes. And since you're the optimist, I let us end it right there uh, at something that excites us. Thank you very much, Kayla. I appreciate it. I know that we've been trying to get this set up for a long time. Thanks, Ryan. Invitation is open. Come back anytime you have something.